You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. It's good to gather as the church this morning. Hey, students, welcome back. It's good to have you all back. I hope it was an awesome week. I saw that you had the red shirt on in the picture from camp. I hope you all watched those shirts. That's why I put you all together over here today. Uh, but I'm glad you all had a great experience. I just know that our church is for you and for your ministry. It's our ministry, all of us together. And to see the middle school and high school students and the volunteers who are part of the ministry and the staff who are part of the ministry, uh, it's just an awesome thing. So we're just really grateful. And I hope that what you learned at camp this week and what you connected with will be a reality as school starts and you get back to normal life. Uh, I'm just thankful for that experience. Uh, summer camp had a huge impact on me growing up as a teenager, as a middle school and high schooler, and I, I'm thankful to see y'all get a similar experience. Also, our men's dinner, our kind of quarterly men's gathering, is tomorrow night at 6.30. We'll have dinner here. Uh, so if you're a dude, show up, and uh, we'll have a good time together uh, talking about important things in the scriptures, have some time to meet people, and eat a good meal together. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians 14, uh, where we're talking about when you go through the book of the Bible, it is what it is. You get to it and you work through it. We're talking about prophecy, speaking in tongues, and women being silent in the church. So this is going to be a fun morning. Uh, you're like, wow, I finally came back to church and this is the morning. Buckle up. Here we go. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful for your word, even the hard passages, and we're thankful that every word of the Bible is inspired by you. Uh, so as we hold to the scriptures, let them first point us to who you are and to what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for salvation, the redemption of sinners. Uh, that you, Jesus died in our place for our sins to make us right, to reconcile us to the Father. So I ask that you bless our time this morning. We're thankful for the songs we had a chance to sing together. Thank you for our students and the time that they had. Lord, I just ask that they continue to grow in their faith and to be serious about Jesus, that they'll love the one who loved them first, that being their creator. And I ask that you be with all the churches in our city as they gather today, and that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our church, out of our city, and that you speak through me this morning through this book of 1 Corinthians. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're just going verse by verse. Next week's the resurrection, so good news. Uh, but when we read the Bible, uh, it's important to know these were letters written to actual churches and actual places. So local church significance is really important and, and is a matter of significance when you read the Bible. Uh, so this kind of unchurched Christianity uh, would be unrecognizable in the scriptures and really causes confusion when reading the Bible since it was addressed to actual specific churches. So it'd be like if the Apostle Paul had gotten out a letter if he was here today and said, you know, dear city church of Tallahassee. Like it's an actual letter to churches, but God in his sovereignty and in his grace and in his purpose uh, has made certain letters that were written to churches timeless, uh, actual authoritative scripture uh, for all of us today. So what Paul wants to see happen here in 1 Corinthians, and 11 through 14 really work together. Uh, we talked about love last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love is patient, love is kind passage of scripture. Uh, that I'd love for you if you weren't here to listen on our podcast or on, on anywhere you can listen to podcasts or go to our website and our media page and listen to that message from last week just to catch up on that. Uh, but Paul wants him to get something straight, the church, regarding what are called spiritual gifts. And the first thing he wants to remind the church before he gets more into it was chapter 13. And that is that love is the true measure of spiritual maturity. And we said last week, not as the world defines love, which means whatever, anything goes, just this kind of utopia kind of world, but no, a love that's driven by what we believe to be true about God's love for us, understood in the fact that while we were sinners, that Christ died for us. Love is the true measure of spiritual maturity. Today, many, or, or at least think of it, they think or at least operate as if knowledge is the key to maturity. 
Now, knowledge of the scriptures matters deeply, but it is not the ultimate marker of maturity. The Bible actually says that knowledge can puff you up, but that love builds up. For others, maybe the mark of maturity is rule-keeping, and some uh, you know, that kind of legalistic, follow these rules and you'll be mature. In some charismatic Pentecostal circles, uh, it can be similar to what we're going to see from 1 Corinthians today, from chapter 14, what they were doing, and that was being obsessed with spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts, that really obsession with it, was causing a false sense of spiritual superiority with some and confusion and church drama with others. So this kind of human nature, we have this tendency to attach a lot of value to gifts or gifting. A lot of times rather than consistency, consist, consistency or integrity, uh, someone who's very a gifted person, that's who resonates with us, that's who we look up to, and that's not really the idea in the scriptures. The spiritual mature is not necessarily someone who has a certain kind of gifting. And in Corinth, this is happening with prophecy and with speaking in tongues. And verse 12, right in the middle of the chapter, is really important. I would say it's a theme verse to grasp everything that's happening here that he's about to say to them in the context of all we've been through through 11 through this chapter. And he says this, So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, he doesn't say it's a bad thing, since you're zealous for these things, seek to excel in building up the church. As that's the point of gifts. For the Christian, that's the point of gifting or a specific spiritual gift. That's the point to build up your local body of Christ. That's the context. And as we go through the rest of the passage today, keep that in mind that that is the grand idea, that that's the big picture to build up the church and the body. So let's go into what he actually says. He says, pursue love, there it is again, and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people, but to God. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Hold tight, I promise. Since no one understands him, he speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. So the one who's speaking in tongues, saying nobody can understand that person, the one who at least is prophesying is giving an edifying word to the body. The person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, what's the point? So that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? You're not going to be able to understand what I have to say. How is this going to build you up? Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? If a harp doesn't play like a harp, you're not going to know it's a harp. In other words, it's unclear, you can't understand. In fact, and here's a military reference, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? If you'll be speaking into the air, there are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. 
If therefore, verse 23, if therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? I love the fact that God cares about the outsider, outsider in this context, be someone who's not a member of the church or an unbeliever. He cares about their experience when they come to a local church. That having the outsider in mind matters to God as an act of grace. Why? He doesn't want to confuse them. You might be I'm a middle school, high school student. I just came from you know, a week at camp. I'm getting ready to go back to school or the real world. And we're talking about this. How is this relevant to me? Like th- this is the Sunday we're talking about this kind of stuff? Well, here's why it's very relevant. God desires for clarity. He loves us enough to want to make sure we understand what's going on in a worship service. There aren't distractions in front of us to keep us from hearing the word. And he's calling out people who are taking this, what they call gift of tongues, and just using it for themselves and saying, that's not edifying the body and it's freaking everybody out. He says, if all are prophesying and some unbeliever outsider comes in, he's convicted by it all and is called to account by it all. So the gift of prophesying, that articulation of the word, that's actually going to help. We want the unbeliever to hear the truth of the scriptures and be challenged in that. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, like conversion will happen. Proclaiming God is really among you. There'll be an awareness of sin, the need for redemption, the need for Christ that comes from the word. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, and, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But in verses 27 through 32, we see that building up the church cannot happen if the gifts are exercised in a disorderly way. What then, verse 26, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything's to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two or at the most three each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets since God is a God of disorder, is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That God is rebuking this church and instructing them at the same time because he wants us to know, to be very clear about who he is and to have nothing distract us from hearing the word, especially someone that's building their own kingdom in doing so. So if you're in the middle of a worship service and someone starts busting out speaking in tongues in the middle of the service while the preacher's preaching, while trying to sing the songs of the faith, while someone's leading us in prayer, what's going to happen? It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant and somebody orders fajitas. What happens when the fajitas come out? Everybody's eyes just go over to the, you, you follow the, the sizzle. You follow the sizzle. It draws attention. Whenever I want a little bit of attention on myself and just need a little ego boost, order fajitas. So everybody look at me. What happens in this context, he's saying, is this is the church version of fajitas. Everyone's going to look over at you, and it's going to cause distraction. It's going to be confusing. They don't know what you're saying. And for the outsider, it's going to weird them out. And it's going to prevent them from actually the place where they're going to get the chance to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed, which is the greatest need they have in their life. So there's a lot here, and I decided to kind of do it thematically, this whole chapter together, rather than kind of work through the nitty-gritties of each word. 
And the way that gifts are being approached by Paul here, who is an apostle, he saw the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But since he was here, we see in the scriptures that these gifts are still necessary and they're still happening uh, because the written word had not been completed yet. We see the disciples be allowed in the early book of Acts to perform miracles that only Jesus would have been able to perform to validate the message. So there's traditionally two kinds of views, and Jake covered this, our student pastor, when he was in chapter 12. But there's usually there's two traditional views when it comes to how Christians that are familiar with these kind of ideas and have been studying this, how they view these ideas of spiritual gifts today, specifically prophecy and speaking in tongues. And these two views, one is called as being a cessationist, which means that you believe those gifts specifically have ceased. Like they don't exist anymore, they're unnecessary, they had their purpose, and there's no need for those gifts to take place in the role of the local church anymore in the body of Christ. The other is a continuationist, which is kind of exactly what it says, continuationist, that you believe they continue. They believe they still, you believe they still exist today, they're still helpful today, they're still part of the Christian experience today. And I, and, I, and this is one of those things where I think that Christians can disagree and be on the same team, you know, and still be united in this. I personally, this is just me, it's not an official city church position, just me as, as, as a Christian, as a pastor of this church, one of the elders of this church, I am a cessationist. Uh, I personally do not believe that tongues and prophecy specifically are necessary or continue today. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You know, it's not, I don't think it's some kind of salvation deal breaker, uh, but that's just what I believe. And why would I think that? One, prophecy, which prophecy think kind of a spontaneous prompting for an utterance uh, to speak, kind of like a word from God kind of idea uh, that has authority behind it. Uh, see, God, I believe, has spoken fully and finally in Jesus Christ. So now we're in no need of extra words or otherwise words known as extra revelation. I just don't see it as necessary anymore. And when it comes to tongues, uh, the gift of tongues and prophecy, I think both have ceased, but I'm nowhere near claiming that the work of the Holy Spirit has stopped. That's a blasphemous thought. We believe in the existence and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit who is God. The Holy Spirit continues to bring people to faith and to grow Christians and to fill us to accomplish the task God has called us to in this life that we can't do on our own. This is from Ephesians chapter two. Paul says, so then, the same author of Corinthians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. And that's great news for us. That God does not see us as outcasts from him anymore. We are fellow citizens. We are part of God's people with the saints and members of God's household. When you become a believer, you're adopted into God's family. You know him now as your father. What an amazing thing to think about. He says, you're not a foreigner anymore. He goes, you have been brought into this house then he says this to add to it, built on, as in it's been built already, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. They have already built this for us and now we as people of faith in God's household, we rest not on a new foundation, we rest on the one that has already been laid. Book of Hebrews, the intro, long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets, an authoritative word, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, which is from, now and from then now until Jesus comes back, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. In other words, we don't need more words from the Lord on who to explain what Jesus Christ did for our salvation. 
Instead, we're going to do what Jude says, and we're to contend for the faith that was delivered, the foundation to the saints once and for all, through the apostles and through the prophets. So these truths from Scripture and others, from the Reformation and a lot of the Protestant, Protestant tradition and, and local church evangelicalism, until really the 20th century, believed that gifts had ceased. Until the 20th century. Then some events happened in California that made people change their minds. It was kind of a revival kind of thing where folks were starting to speak in tongues and do these things. But here's what's important to know. The, tongue, the tongues in the Bible are actually defined languages. The gift of tongues. It's not gibberish. So, for example, when the gift of the Holy Spirit comes down and they start speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, what we see is they go, wow. He's speaking in a different language, and then they define the language. I speak only English. But if I was able, all of a sudden, with no practice, no learning, to start speaking in French, to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who only spoke French, that would be the gift of tongues. Not the gibberish, out-of-nowhere utterances that we see happen in many churches today. I think it's really responsible, I I take this seriously, when it comes to really heavy topics and hard chapters of the Bible, to really consult experts, like the best in their field on these type of things. I did a lot of reading on this. And and this comes from Tom Schreiner, who was one of my professors, and I think is probably the best, uh, when I say best, I mean, I think really the person that God has equipped and gifted to to, to write about these kind of things. So he writes this, to put it another way, We don't have apostles like Paul and Peter and John anymore. They give us the authoritative teaching by which the church continues to live to this day. And this is the only teaching we will need, as in our Bibles, until Jesus returns. We know the new apostles won't appear since Paul specifically says he was the last apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And when James, brother John, died, Acts 12, he wasn't replaced Apostles in the technical sense are restricted to those who have seen the risen Lord and have been commissioned by him and no one since, since apostolic times fits such criteria. The apostles were uniquely appointed for the early days of the church to establish orthodox doctrine. There is no warrant then for saying there are still apostles today. Indeed, if anyone claims to be an apostle today, we should be concerned. For such a claim opens the door to false teaching and the abuse of authority. It's common to see some pastors today have apostle in front of their name, and I'm not saying we aren't brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not saying they're not gonna be in heaven with me when I die, but you're not an apostle. Like, you're not. Like, they can call you that, fine, you're not. You're not an apostle. That was a unique role for those who met the criteria of being called and appointed by God himself and also witnesses of the resurrection. J.I. Packer says this about tongues. When Paul says no one understands those speaking in tongues because they utter mysteries, verse two, he isn't suggesting the gift is different from what we find in Acts. They're just doing something completely different from the Bible. Those hearing the tongues in Acts understood what was being said because they knew the languages the apostles were speaking. If no one knows the language and the tongue they speak utters mysteries, which doesn't edify the body of Christ, unless we actually know what's being said. For me personally, and again, I think people are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I do not believe what is called tongues today in charismatic churches is actually from the Bible. I'm just being real with you through this text. 
I'm not saying they're liars or they're frauds. No, this, this is our Christian family. These are our brothers and sisters. I believe that it's either caused by maybe an emotional moment. It's been um, maybe conditioned. Uh, there's records of, uh, documented records of churches that actually teach sounds to make to kids and like teach them how to do those things and speak. That's, that's a real thing. Uh, so I just do not, just personally don't believe that. Now, I think you can disagree with me and still be in fellowship with this church and fellowship with our elders and the rest of this church, I, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I do not believe what we see as tongues today in churches is actually the tongues from the Bible. Uh, so it's important to understand what's called theological triage. And for students who are going, okay, why does this matter? As the world gets more complicated and being a Christian gets more just hard, just call it what it is, it's important that you're able to sort through what really, really matters and what isn't that big of a deal because you're not gonna have time to die on every single hill and care about every single thing. So I hope this is helpful for you. Uh, theological triage, like if, you go to the, if we go to the ER today and I broke my finger and you were having a heart attack, I'd hope that they'd see me first. No, I'd hope they'd see you first. I'll be a baby screaming about my finger, but I'd hope they'd see you first and see me afterwards. They would triage us in terms of significance. And, and I think, I, I, this is not something new, but the person I know has spent the most time talking about this is Al Moeller from Southern Seminary. He's kind of developed a lot of this thought. But theological triage, there's kind of three layers of triage. And the first layer are things that are so important. If one of us doesn't agree, one of us isn't a Christian. Jesus rose from the grave, like bodily. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There is no sin in him. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Like, the only way you get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Like, if one of us doesn't believe one of those things, like, one of us isn't a Christian. They're what's called first-tier issues. The next one would be a second-tier issue, which are, hey, we're on the same team, we're family, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but this is a church membership issue. Like, I love your church, but I'm not going to be a member of your church uh, simply because of, I might even visit sometimes, or you know, if I'm out of town somewhere, a different denomination, but, like, but it's a church membership issue, and church membership really matters. An example of that might be baptism, to where uh, we believe at our church here that baptism is done by believers. Like, believers get baptized, not infants. We don't think we're better Christians than our friends who baptize infants. We don't think we're more spiritual. We think they love Jesus as much as we do. We actually learn a lot from them. Some of the guys I quoted, one of the guys I quoted in here today is an infant baptism guy. Same family, same team, but I am not going to be a member of a church that doesn't baptize believers, because to me, I think it's a significant enough issue for church fellowship. That doesn't mean you can't be a part of our, you can't be a guest here, you can't attend here all the time, but to be a member of our church it requires you to be baptized. Not because we think it makes you a Christian, because we think it's part of the discipleship process, a starting point for following Christ. Uh, so that would be an issue, that, that would be a, a, an issue of a second tier kind of level. It's not a salvation issue, same team, but we have a different understanding when it comes to what will make us come together as a unified congregation, like specific congregation. Uh, the third tier uh, would be things that we can be in the exact same church, be members, and have a totally different view on it, and we can talk about it at lunch if you want to, but it's really not a big deal. An example of that for me would be, one would be alcohol. There's a lot of people who think that Christians should never, ever drink alcohol and are really hardcore about it. I am not one of those Christians. The Bible says that wine makes the heart glad, and I'm like, amen. So, biblical literist here. So, um, but 
The Bible gives clear warnings about drunken, or, or it prohibits drunkenness, gives warnings about what alcohol can do to you, how it can lead you astray. It tells us to be sensitive towards others. So there's an alcoholic in your presence, what that looks like to love your neighbor, not touch the stuff around that person. But the Bible does not tell a Christian they sh- they're not allowed to drink alcohol. We're told to obey the laws of the land, so you have to be 21 years old. Quick shout out, just want to let you all know that. Uh, so, but Christians can disagree even strongly, at least they should be able to, on that issue and be in the same congregation, which means that there's someone in your church congregation who has a conviction about drinking alcohol, you don't pressure them to do so. And if you have someone who doesn't have that same conviction as you, you don't guilt or shame them about it. You can exist in the same body under third tier issues. When it comes to tongues and prophecy, I believe that the belief that of prophecy in tongues is a third tier issue. The practice is a second tier issue. The belief, we can have different beliefs about that in here, totally have harmony, church unity, but if someone started practicing that in the middle of a worship service, that would be a problem. Like, that would be a problem. And it'd be a, it'd be a specific local church issue that our elders would deal with and ask somebody to knock that off. Because it's not what we believe the scriptures say about that. And Paul gives order about how it's supposed to be because he wants no distractions and to be clear. See, God wants them to know here in Corinth that their church, that what they do in their worship services matters. It matters for the church members that are going to be built up, and it matters for the guests and their experience. Tongues in the middle of a service without an interpreter, and there's no need for that here because I think everyone here can at least understand English. At least a little bit. Maybe it's your second language. You can understand it. And if not, we'll have someone help you. Drawing attention, freaking people out, being confusing is not building up the church. The need for order and clarity continues in the next section where we see this, verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints. The churches that are happening here around us in this area where we are at this time. The women should be silent in the churches. Here we go. Pray for me. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. They want to learn something. Let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? Have a great week. We'll see you next week. No, sorry. So, so before, amen. Oh, he's in trouble. So before, before you freak out, um, and understand where the first instinct would be to do that, uh, the same Bible that we trust to tell us that Jesus rose from the grave is the same Bible that has 1 Corinthians 14. So our job is not to throw it out the window, but to actually understand why it's there and what it's actually saying and to force ourselves to not read it with 21st century social media-driven Western eyes, which is really hard to do, myself included. So again, let's, let's, let's really like look into it and see what's really happening here because context is king in the Bible. Context matters. So Schreiner says this, and, and I, did, I, I probably read six or seven different guys on this, and, and I think Schreiner is where I landed, and I think he's right. And who am I to say? He, I mean, we're both just humans, but I, I really think he's right. What is most likely is that Paul is dealing with a particular issue happening in the Corinthian church, and he says all the churches, so perhaps the ones in the surrounding area, rather than laying down general guidelines for everyone. Well, how do we know that, he says? Well, for starters, it would create a very problematic contradiction 
that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, just three chapters before, which indicates that women were praying and prophesying in the church. It was actually taking place. They were speaking and using their gifts. Paul doesn't rebuke them or tell them to stop. It's actually nothing even close to that. Just three chapters before. He gives them instructions on how to do it the right way in a way that allows them to speak and use their gifts in a way that doesn't provide distraction, but also in a way, and this is really important, that doesn't contradict or show up their husbands. This really matters because God has given men and women to be husband and wife to each other and to work out different roles in that. That's not cultural. When the Bible talks about the roles of men and women, it doesn't give a cultural reference. It actually points back to Genesis. Let's talk about that for a minute because it's important. And God wants, again, the scriptures want, he wants to be clear. He wants us to hear, to understand. And so I, I think it's important to know this, that God has made men and women 100% equal in value, worth, and dignity. No disclaimer, no comma, period. And in that, he has made us to complement one another with different roles. That's not for the government, that's not for the business place, that's not for school or for university setting, it's for marriage and it's for the church where God has given women the opportunity to have exercised so many gifts and so many things, but he has reserved for leadership for the elders of the church to be male, to be males, it's very clear in the scriptures, and in the home for the husband to be the spiritual leader, not the dictator. And it's, it's, it's just, I can't help but roll my eyes a little bit, and I hope I'm not arrogant in saying that when people say the Bible's anti-women. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. You know how much Jesus loved the church? He died for the church. Women are called to respect their husbands. So you have to respect your husband. I have to die. All right? And to see Jesus, how he speaks to women, and it's, there's supposed to be a distinction. There, is, there are two genders. And God has made them to complement one another. Again, not in the government, not in the business, not in the university setting, not at school, but in marriage and in the church. And in our church, we think that, so we want to, we're not going to add things to the Bible that aren't there. So we're an elder-led, we're an elder-overseeing-led church, and all our elders are men. We also have staff that lead our church in the day-to-day. Elders oversee, staff do the, so our elders are lay people, they, they have jobs, they, so they, they've, they've entrusted the staff to lead the church in terms of just how it operates kind of Monday through Friday, you know, kind of nine-to-five kind of idea. We have an executive team. Uh, that, is, that, really, uh, that oversees the staff. Not, they're not elders, they're an executive team. And two women are on our executive team. Like, it's a really big deal for us to have women in powerful positions, like, for lack of a better word, that have a lot of influence and can use their gifts. Uh, so what's happening most likely here is that the men are prophesying. Again, most likely, we're not 100% clear, that the men are, are, are exercising, their prof- they're prophesying and that this particular church and maybe the churches around them, that Paul is getting word uh, that maybe so some women were interrupting, were, uh, were cutting them off, were contradicting, were creating division, but also were not helping their marriage. That's why he said, wait till you go home and then talk about it. It's not the place to, to cut somebody off, especially your husband, and interrupt that person, make them look bad, one-up them, remind them where they're wrong. We shouldn't do that ever, right, in a married relationship. We don't want to cut each other off, and we don't want to 
show the other person up in front of others, you can just see your spouse sort of shrink when you do that. They just kind of shrink down when someone talks to them that way or does that sort of thing. So he's been discussing various problems in the worship of the Corinthian church from chapter 11 onwards, like how he observed the Lord's Supper, to how, as Alex preached on earlier this, this summer, the use of spiritual gifts, which Jake talked about. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35, should be seen again in the overall context, but exactly what the, the actual problem was concerning the women that he's speaking to is unclear. A Shriner asked these questions. Were wise the prophetic gifts publicly questioning their husbands and cutting them off? Uh, were they not respecting their husbands? Were, they, were there disputes? And one commentator asked this, is it possible that Paul is sorting out some particular abuse of this sort of 1 Corinthians 14? Rather than prohibiting all open female participation in worship, and so contradicting what he said in 1 Corinthians 11, it would seem probable that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul has in mind a particular husband-wife problem, even if his advice also has a bearing on the overall question of men and women in the church. Maybe he's just causing a scene. Remember, he doesn't want confusion or chaos in worship. So we have to ask ourselves in faithful Bible study, part of really believing in the inspiration of the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures, the inerrancy of the scriptures, is let the Bible be the Bible. So fundamentalism and legalism adds things to the Bible that you want to include to advance your agenda. In theological liberalism, progressivism takes things away from the Bible that you don't like. We don't have the right to do either one of those things. So what's, hap- what's clearly scriptural here is that God does not want anything dividing the institution of marriage and the roles that he has set up for us to flourish, for his glory and for our good. What's cultural here more is how this is being played out for this particular church at this time. Because chapter 11 tells us that the women were sharing and were praying and were speaking and he did not tell them to stop doing that. He told them the right way to do it like everybody else, orderly, and not abusing the gifts that are happening at the time. And this stuff matters, and we can't be ashamed of this. Because again, the God that, the, the same Bible it tells us in the very next chapter for next week about the resurrection of Christ is the same Bible it tells us about this. And it's gonna be really easy to kind of be ashamed of gender distinctions in our world right now, and let me tell you what, you just can't do it. You gotta trust God. And those gender distinctions do not apply to boyfriends and girlfriends. They do not apply to dating life in terms of the roles. The gender distinctions apply to everything. God made us different. They apply to marriage and they apply to the church. And we see throughout scripture and church history that God uses women to flourish in the church in a mighty and powerful way. And here's the other thing. God knows what he's doing. Look at what's happened since the Garden of Eden when brokenness came into play. And look around our world right now. Sexual revolution, abuse, homes and families hurt by destructive decisions of spouses that led to divorce. I mean, we can't back down on this stuff if we're going to love God and love our neighbor. Because we have a world right now that's in complete chaos over the fact that they don't even know what a man is or a woman is. Even at the highest levels of government, they know, they just won't say so what do we do? We be more clear than ever that he has made them male and female and that men are supposed to step up. And by step up, it doesn't mean to be a Bible scholar or to be some amazing leader. It means you have to be faithful. Faithful. In the responsibilities that God has given you at home and in the church. 
Again, how's it working for the world when this is all broken? Uh, you look around and you see the fatherlessness, you know, this epidemic. And there's just so many things, and it all goes back to the fact of departing from God's design. So it's our job as people who have the word of God, who don't need a new prophecy, who don't need a spoken tongue, who have the scriptures, to call people by God's grace to recover and pursue what's been lost. Because God's not done with you if you've made a mistake. You're not used goods to him. You're not, oh, already tried it, he's failed. No. He rises us up to now go and go forward, now live a new life that he's given us. And it matters to him. So the last verse here, he says, so then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Again, the gift was still existing then. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. It was done what was the right way at that time. Interpreter, that kind of idea. But verse 40, but everything's be done decently and in order. How refreshing that in a world of chaos, God wants to bring his people order. So people say things like, we need to make more room for the spirit. That's not a biblical idea. The spirit's everywhere. The spirit's everywhere. And chaos and random things happening is not the definition of making room for the spirit. Making room for the spirit is, Jesus, use my life. Help me to understand the Bible. Help me understand how much I'm loved by you. Use me for your glory. Make me unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help my mind transform from being so programmed by the latest political messaging of the day that I lose sight or become embarrassed or explain away what you've already given us that is good. I'm thankful that as chaotic as our world is and as chaotic as I can be, in my own mind, that God's clear. He's given us the scriptures. Let us really actually believe not only that it's enough, but it's what we need for life and ministry and faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians, that you were addressing a church in chaos and had many difficulties, and you gave them hope. You gave them instruction. You helped them see what you had for them. And Lord, I ask that we will be people who have confidence in the scriptures. That you will fill us with your spirit so we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that your spirit continues to move in Tallahassee and through this church. But let us define these the way you do, not a 20th century experience somewhere. I thank you that you're a God of order. And that you want us to know. You don't want us to be distracted. I, those are just acts of grace and we praise you for that. So I ask that we will be a church a people together that know we're loved by you, that know that you so love the world that you gave your only son, that ever believes in you will not perish, have everlasting life, that we respond to that, and that we recover and pursue by the Spirit, by your grace, what's been broken. We're thankful that you're the one who restores, and now you allow us to live a new life, pursuing the things of you. For those in this room today that maybe think that they've run out of chances, or they messed up too bad, or they're ashamed of their past or decision, I ask they just receive grace this morning. So they understand that you love them, that Jesus died for their mistakes, and that you're not done with them. You have a purpose for their life, and it's to be your child, to follow you, to be on your mission, to be part of your church. And I ask that we'll see that as glorious and a wonderful thing. So we thank you for Jesus, his great name. And it's in that name we pray and ask. Amen. Let's